Welcome, everyone, and thank you so much for listening today to our third in a series of special edition Let's Chat Markets podcasts, chatting with some of our Outlook Conference speakers and panelists. You've got Eric Meyer here, president of High Ground Dairy, and we have one month to go before the industry gathers back in Chicago, June 20th through the 22nd, for our second annual Global Dairy Outlook Conference at the historic Union League Club. Have you still not registered for the event? It's time to get on that by visiting our website at highgrounddairy.com forward slash conference to learn more and register today. Today's podcast features one of the legends in the dairy industry, or maybe just a legend in my own mind, since he's someone I've known in the dairy industry for virtually my entire career. Mike Brown, Chief Economist for the International Dairy Foods Association. Thank you so much for joining us. How has spring been up in Kenosha by the lake? Well, it's finally beautiful, and I have lots of weeds to weed, and so I'm getting my outdoor garden exercise. Things are great here. That's awesome. So, Mike, I am personally thrilled to have you as a speaker panelist at this year's Outlook Conference. Our careers are somewhat intertwined, or perhaps just my memory of it, and let me explain. Back in 2001, I stumbled as a young dairy professional into this industry through a meeting that I had with Mike Downs and Joe O'Neill, who had in the late 90s a crazy idea of disseminating educational material on price risk management to, and market dairy anal analysis to the masses via a website, eDairy. And who was one of those early subscribers who paid $159 for each year to have access to the premium content on our two-page website, but Mike Brown, then with National All Jersey. After I left Downs O'Neill in 2005 and spent some time at Sarah Lee, managing dairy procurement and risk, I came back to the risk management brokerage world with FC Stone. And one of the first business trips I had was back in August 2008 to the Idaho Milk Processors Association annual meeting in Sun Valley, Idaho, where, you guessed it, I had dinner with you, Mike, and the Glambia team. Then fast forward a number of years, and you had become a mentor at Glambia to Lucas Fees, who eventually went on to become High Ground's first director of dairy market intelligence. And now in 2023, we've got you speaking at our second annual Global Market Outlook Conference. Mike, any memories, good or bad, of those old days from the crew at Downs O'Neill when you first began interacting with Mike and Joe, who were my mentors in the business? Yeah, I have one really special one. It was a Jersey herd in Wisconsin who was planning an expansion. And this was right around the, the you know late 90s, early 2000s. And as part of that process, of course, growing their dairy, they were going to be purchasing more feed. They were adding cows and, of course, had cash flow concerns. And so in 1999, they actually did some activity, found ways to work on getting some forward sales on milk. And so when they expanded in 2000, which was a devastating year for milk prices, their cash flow worked. And they've told me many times after that, if we hadn't done that, we might not have been around in 2001. So yeah, very special memory uh, on that was one of my favorite dairymen, frankly, in the country. So yes, very positive. They were innovators. They had the patience of Job in those early days, uh, educating everyone, including me. And it's been exciting to see the industry, of course, grow since then. Sure has. Well, let's dive into the Wayback Machine and talk about your time at National All Jersey, where you spent 11 years uh, in Ohio. Was that your first dairy role, Mike? Oh, heavens no. Um, I, I, have, I have a long dairy background. I mean, my first 
my original, my first job was really working with farmers on was extension, feed rations, farm budgets. I have a degree actually in, in dairy science and I call it a degree in cow milking from Virginia Tech. So it was really that farm level stuff. And I was raised on a small farm. So that was pretty normal extension because I'm the one that really, or the family that really liked the industry. So that was really first. And then I worked for National Milk Producers for four years, worked some for a private consulting firm before going to Jersey in 1990 and 93 and that was basically to start working on growing component pricing simply because the growth of cheese was evident it was strong it was going to continue and how do we move pricing to better serve not only farmers but the processors to get the protein and fat they needed to make their products and the timing was right and so i i took advantage of that because i could work in milk marketing which i loved and at the same time it represent my many, many friends in the uh, Jersey industry. So it was a great chance to do that. And uh, and we had good success over those. Uh, I spent I was at Jersey for 11 years to 2004. And we had some really great success uh, moving pricing toward components away from skim for manufacturing, which needed to happen anyway. Mm-hmm. And a lot of private arrangements with companies as well. And in the later years, after component pricing was becoming, the changes were happening. He needs to spend a little more time on risk management strategy, which I've always had a, a strong interest in, not only with producers, but we did a little bit of outside service work as well on some swaps on class one back before anybody was doing that. Yeah. So it made for a very interesting uh, life at Jersey. I really enjoyed my years there. That's great. And then from Ohio to Seattle. So you were Dairy Gold's director of member services for a few years, which I almost forgot about that step before I reread your LinkedIn profile. Tell us about that that move. And uh, it seemed like a, a good one to stay close to the farmer for sure. But I've got to ask, because Seattle is kind of a love it or hate it town. Like, how'd you enjoy your time there? Well, I deal with seasonal affective disorder, so you guess. Um, <laughs> Seattle in the summer, uh, in fact, the old CEO when I was there told me, he says, Seattle, and he's a native of the Northwest, says, you're going to love Seattle in the summer. It's glorious. By January, you need to escape for a few weeks because you're going to be so depressed with the clouds. And there's some truth to that. It's a very large city. It's the first large city I'd lived in. Well, I lived outside of D.C. for a while. But, you know, the first large city I lived in that I was a homeowner for sure. And it was uh, culturally very different. I'm pretty open-minded, but I learned things I never thought I would learn, I guess, when I was just living there. Uh, and the other thing is that it's a rough business for manufacturing to be in because you're so far from customers unless it's the dry product market, which exports, of course, even then had a lot of opportunity in the, in the 2000s. And so I found that it was very, um, you know, very diverse, very interesting. But in the end, the longer I've been in the industry, the more of a libertarian I've become. And I was looking for chances where I could be even more creative in my job and get more involved with trade and export policy, those kinds of things. Yeah, that's. And I had that opportunity with Glambia, which is why I moved. Yeah, so you spent a number of years there working in Evanston, which was the hometown of Northwestern University, which was my alma mater. And you commuted from Kenosha while you were there, right? Part of the time. I uh, started out living in the north suburbs of Chicago in a neighborhood called Andersonville. I rented a townhouse, which I loved, and reached a point where I wanted to buy a home. And so my criterion for a home was, where can I live in suburbs, it's affordable that I could take a train into town. And Kenosha being the last stop on the Metro Line North was the logical place to go. So that's where I ended up there. And found uh, found Glambia, a wonderfully creative company. Of course, uh, Lucas joined me and my team when we were there. And he was just great to work with. Really good writer. And uh, we had a, had a great time. And it was, Glambia's a pretty creative company. 
I worked on all kinds of projects, everything from, you know, where in the world will milk growth be? How competitive are different markets? Creative risk management strategies for our producer uh, suppliers in Idaho. And so it's a very full plate and it was different every day and did a lot of work with strategy, which I've grown to really like. Uh, I'd done it before, but there I really was part of my job and I really enjoyed that opportunity because they're a global company. And of course, dairy in the U.S. has become global. And so it was a really chance to be part of that growth and how a company with a big domestic footprint could fit in. So it's it's a great time. That's great. Perhaps it's because I first met you and you were at Glanbia. I figured that that would kind of be, you know, that that was your career, right? Like you'd be in the economist and the policy and the strategy side, but you pivoted later in your journey, taking a director of dairy supply chain role with the Kroger company, packing up from Kenosha, at least for a while, and moving to Cincinnati. I know I enjoyed my time in dairy procurement during my tenure at Sara Lee, but that lasted three years. And I felt like there were no shortages of fires that had to be put out on that side of the business. At a national retail grocery operation, I'm sure those challenges were something like tenfold of what I had to deal with at Sara Lee, but ultimately you must have learned a ton from that experience. Well, I got I got hired because I understood the industry understood markets, understood regulation, and so pricing regulation. That's one of the reasons I was hired because they needed someone with that background. So I inherited a team. We had a cheese bar that understood the business. Other than that, really talented people who didn't have a lot of background in industry. So it was a chance to mentor, which I enjoyed very, very much. But the bigger part is a lot of your large retailers are very traditional. They don't really think about risk management or didn't. That's certainly changing. And so it was a chance to introduce some different ways to think, different ways to buy, different ways to price items. Uh, price in Kroger, full disclosure, has 14 fluid milk plants, two cheese cut and wraps that are pretty significant in size, as well as all the products that they don't manufacture or package, which you buy in retail. And we were responsible for everything that was under the Kroger uh, brands, anything that was a store brand, which in Kroger is a very, very big deal. Mm-hmm. And so it was a chance to get creative, think creatively, particularly Uh, With risk management, what are some things we can do that we can manage basis risk with CME versus NDPSR pricing, for example? And we came up with some good solutions. I was there for seven years, and I'll be honest, it's a very, very large company. And I decided that I was going to do some more fun kind of projects. And so I elected to retire last January. At that time, I was also chair of, of the Economic Policy Committee at IDFA. And when I told them I was leaving, they asked if I wanted to work with them to help them through this this current federal order process. And I was silly enough to say yes. So great <laughs> years at Kroger. Still have great friends there. But it's a very, very large company. And it's the first place I worked where dairy wasn't the focus. It was important, but it's by far from the majority of the business. So I really prefer working with a little more, more dairy-centric. But it was a great company. And... Uh, and I really admire them. It's a tough industry and they've been pretty successful. Supermarkets is a tough business and they continue to be creative. And it's, uh, you know, as a, as a former employee, I own some stock and I'm very proud that I do because in the last year they've done much better than the market. So uh, that's been a good thing too. Absolutely. So now let's talk about IDFA. So, I mean, you've been a part of the organization for quite some time as a, as a member and supporter um, but now you now you work there. Now you're the chief economist, and it's coming at a time where it's not just a farm bill, but it's a federal milk marketing order modernization. There's a lot going on. What are some of those initiatives or challenges that IDFA will be prioritizing this year 
as USDA and Congress work on these issues? Well, there's really two sets of discussions, Eric, but there's a lot of parts. One is is manufacturing milk prices. That's, of course, manufacturing allowances, the money that they deduct for the cost of converting milk into products. Uh, there's discussions on uh, barrel cheese and block cheese, which are both part of that. There's discussions on how we have better cost surveys. And we're involved in all of those things. And there's also a big discussion on class one and a lot of interest in what can class one do to help make up a change in makes at the same time as I think we all know class one sales have been declining. And the one area where there's really growth is in the extended shelf life products, specialty products. I saw that at Kroger. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of your growth is in that's where the growth is. It isn't in the gallons of HTSD, you know, regular old milk. And so how do we make the orders if we're going to have them? How do we make them best accommodate growth, financial stability of manufacturers? Uh, for example, the makes haven't changed. Uh, the last survey was completed in 06 and 07. That's crazy. And they haven't changed since. And so it's really squeezed a lot of folks. And then the block rail spread, which if you go up to 2016, wasn't an issue. And then, Eric, we had five years where it got very wide. Some of that's trade related. Some of that is unregulated plants. Mm -hmm. But a lot of that is simply consumer preferences have also changed. There's some really weird things that change. For example, the EU's requiring white whey. You couldn't bleach whey for infant formula, which affected the ability to make yellow cheese and sell the whey into that market, sure. which made interest in white barrels basically a lot stronger. So there's lots of different parts. And our industry becomes more complicated, more sophisticated. I think it's more and more difficult to make regulation work without basically crippling people. I've long held a belief if you can't be competitive because you aren't efficient, you're making the wrong products, shame on you. But if you're having troubles because regulation is predicting a cost or is unfairly estimating a cost or using products that you don't make, we need to address that because... In our growing industry, as we all know, we've had across particularly the cheese and even the, in the milk protein business as well, huge change in product mix that people are making, whether it's whey proteins, milk proteins, as well as cheese types and particularly cheese for export. We need to have a system that accommodates that growth. We have a lot of producers that are currently under quota programs. They can't expand. And uh, if we're going to allow for expansion and allow for that growth, we've got to have a system that's flexible enough to allow it to happen. And right now, we don't really have that. So that's my real reason to come to IDFA is what can we do to enable our processes, our co-ops and their members uh, experience growth moving forward. And it's more than just the algebra of a make allowance. It's a much, Absolutely. much bigger economic picture. Well, I certainly applaud you for being a part of that process, but I'm uh, I'm, I'm sure that it'll create a few more gray hairs in this, in this in the next couple of years as all this gets pushed through. Well, I'll give you a little side on that. Um, you know, as you know, I'm a redhead. And uh, and my hair has certainly gotten whiter. And when I moved back to Wisconsin, and of course, my the license is still there. So it's real easy to, to change back. And she says, you mean to make any changes? And I said, well, you know, my hair really isn't red anymore, <laughs> but I'm too vain to call it white. She says, well, let's call it Sandy. I said, OK. So I for the first time in my life, I'm not a redhead. I have Sandy hair. So <laughs> and that's official by the state of Wisconsin, right? Yeah. And if the state of Wisconsin says it's official, by golly, that's the way it is. So exactly. Uh, but yeah, good. it's great to be yeah. back back. And I love the upper Midwest. I love Chicago. I love uh, I love Wisconsin. I'm really grateful to be back. Kroger was a great experience. I'm not a big fan of living in Cincinnati. It doesn't have that Midwest Rust Belt 
an agriculture kind of feel, which I like because I was raised with that in Western New York. Mm-hmm. So it's 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 home for me. So it's, I'm delighted to be back and appreciate the opportunity to visit. You bet. Well, Mike, I enjoyed our time chatting today and really excited to have you as one of our esteemed speakers and panelists at this year's High Ground Dairy Outlook Conference taking place here in Chicago, June 20th through the 22nd. Mike, thanks so much. And thank you. Look forward to seeing you in a few weeks. Perfect. Listener, if you haven't yet registered or have not told all of your industry colleagues about this event, I would highly recommend that you and your friends visit our website at highgrounddairy.com forward slash conference and take care of that today. More podcasts like this showcasing additional speakers are set to air in the next couple weeks. So stay tuned.